Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Should we go through the disclaimer, guys, before? No, definitely. Let's talk about our drinks. Let's disclaim our drinks first. All right. Everybody have today. I don't have anything I like, fancy. I feel like Mike didn't ha- doesn't have a drink. Oh, you've oh. got a fancy. What is that? Um, Armagnac. Japanese. Baby. Oh, the Armagnac. Nice. Corona. Yeah, I, got, so. I got a Peruvian Pisco. Ooh, um, very with, nice. Uh, Peruvian Pisco Sour style. I like that a lot. With That's a, a fancy thing. straw. That's a thing that I like. I, quick. I feel like my creativity on on the on the happy hour drinks has gone a little sideways uh, lately, and I've got to, really? I got out my game. I got to get back to the whiskey sour. How dare that. you what, focus on the content what, what, and not um, the drinks? Yeah, what are you got to run a business or something? Exactly. I know, right? The other thing I got I got to remember is that for for you and I, Richard. Um, I I think our shirts when you have like a patterned shirt, it kind of comes across as a bit. It is right. I can tell Bonking, now. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's like a visual have, effect. Yeah, we have to remember not to wear these these uh, very very high class high end pinstripes <laughs> on on the show. So uh, yeah, we've covered the drinks. I'm having a ten year Armagnac. You there, you were having a Pisco sour, um, Rod. That's right. Finally opened. And up just a bottle. couple of beers over there. The, the other guys Mexican. having a couple of beers. Nice. Yeah, a couple of Mexican beers. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Excellent. Well, as usual. I guess we can jump into the the fact that um, the discussions here will be wide ranging and go in different directions and that you should not rely on or consider any of this investment advice. If you're going to do anything in these wild and crazy markets of today, you definitely should garner some advice from a legal professional or not legal professional, a financial professional in your area. And uh, Real personal, handy. yeah, probably all the professionals, <laughs> just get advice from all the professionals. If you can, mm-hmm. let's go through the professionals, shall we? No, let's not. <laughs> you're going to engage in public markets without protection at the moment. You should engage yes. with a psychiatrist. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Amen, yeah. So there's, I think there's quite a bit to, to talk about today. The, the post-factor world video uh, uh, went live. I also think that there's probably a few tidbits to pull out of um, out of the discussion that uh, you had with uh, Marat too, Adam. I found that pretty fascinating. And uh, some things to dig in there that, you know, a little bit related. I thought there were some interesting things about the participants in markets changing the character of markets that Marat pointed out and how that has implications for other things that we might talk about today. So I think it's a pretty, pretty interesting day. Where do you guys want to start? Well, I kind of feel like Adam should. Well, I think you, you actually um, did a good job of setting up the theme, right? So I think the theme for today is um, the crystallization of an idea that has been forming for a while, I think, um, in all of our brains, and I think probably at different times. I think maybe, Mike, you, you may have sort of gotten an, an intuition on this a little bit uh, earlier than, than some of us, but the the recognition that as investment concepts are, are published, which amount to basically new technologies in the domain of investments, they have a similar adoption curve where 
There's the real innovators that identify the anomaly in the first place. And then there's a class of early adopters that tend to be a little bit more adventurous and risk taking, at least like in the, in the context of the risk of complexity and novelty. Um, and then, you know, things are published. It gains traction with an academic group. It gets published in a peer reviewed journal and all of a sudden it, it enters the Overton window and it gets, it gets broad adoption. And I think there has, this is general belief in the factor or smart beta world that the fact that people know and recognize and adopt strategies to harvest excess return from a new investment concept doesn't fundamentally change the nature of that new idea. And I think we all sort of operate on that basis. We examine the empirical work, um, the publications, maybe we run some of our own back tests that to validate the original published research and say, okay, this particular set of characteristics has, has traditionally led to or produced excess returns. And then we expect that historical profile to carry on in the future. And what um, investment technologies have is a, is a reflexive nature that most other technologies or concepts don't have that fundamentally changes the nature of or the state of the market after something is published, right? And so this recognition that publication itself changes the nature of market participants and therefore should reset how we think about expectations for that concept going forward. Yeah, so I just actually have it up on the screen here that the idea of this uh, trajectory of new investment concepts. So basically... The idea is that there may be an anomaly in the beginning that nobody's really talking about. You have this pre-publication premium and you hover around this space here for a while. And then somebody decides to, an academic decides to publish their findings. It uh, gets widely adopted. You get a bunch of money into it. So you get a late majority. You get so much money into it, into it, you may, it may lead to an abandonment phase at which point everybody leaves, but enough players stay because it's painful to, to still be in it. There's probably going to be an equilibrium a premium invested there, uh, but there will be an abandonment phase. It'll be when enough AUM leaves it, people ignore it, and uh, but not enough so that it goes back up to the pre-publication premium. Right? Exactly, right? So there's, a, there's this, the top line there is, I guess the threshold T-stat that is required for a reputable journal to publish research, right? So you've got you've got many people um, doing research on risk premia or anomalies, and in order for that research typically to be published, that anomaly needs to exceed a certain level of statistical and economic significance. And so it's got it's it's got very high economic and statistical significance, representing the the the, the height of that horizontal line above zero, right? And the idea is that it was very high before the anomaly was made, was brought public and gained recognition from credible academics and was published in credible journals. And before everybody bought into the economic intuition behind the, um, the premium, 
but by virtue of so many people buying into the premium, that premium eventually goes away or even inverts. And I think it's it's worthwhile going back to why some of these premiums exist, right? And certainly back in the days of Fama French, and largely still today, a, a wide variety of investors and academics um, still prefer the explanation that most of these premia that exist, exist because of, they represent a certain type of risk. And because they represent risk, they can't be arbitraged away because it's just, you know, an investor is taking more risk and therefore getting more return, right? But I think what a lot of the literature has shown, um, and there's been some really great uh, papers published over the last five years or so that goes back and evaluates the returns to premia um, out of sample and post-publication and have sort of validated this understanding of why premium exists. Typically, I think it's well, I can certainly adopt the view based on the literature that most of these premia exist because um, of behavioral preferences. So you've got a cohort of investors that for, for some reason or another doesn't want to own securities with certain characteristics. I mean, an easy example of this is sort of sin stocks, right? So you've got a class of investors that don't want to own sin stocks. Therefore, sin stocks are priced at a discount. And investors that are willing to own sin stocks will go in and and earn an an excess return from owning securities that another class of investors doesn't want to own. But what, what isn't often recognized is that by virtue of a large number of investors crowding into securities with those characteristics. I mean, imagine there was originally a um, billion dollars worth of capital that was avoiding securities with these characteristics. As soon as a billion dollars of capital comes into securities with those uh, characteristics to arbitrage that uh, discount or anomaly, now You've got an equal amount of dollars that don't want to own those securities and an equal amount of dollars that want to overemphasize those securities. So we would expect that anomaly to go away, right? That those two pools of capital have neutralized one another. But what happens when more money flows into securities with those characteristics than there was originally investors that wanted to avoid firms with those characteristics? Well, at that point, we'd expect that premium to actually invert so what was previously securities with certain characteristics were expected to deliver a premium, an excess return. Now those securities would be expected to deliver to, to deliver a discount. In other words, to deliver negative excess returns for whatever period exists until enough people abandon that strategy, move away from it, and that market or that discount can be in an equal, a new equilibrium where you've got the most disciplined investors who can tolerate a certain lower level of premium that are just going to stick with it no matter what. They're the diehards and they will earn some lower premium um, than, you know, but substantially lower probably than the original pre-publication premium. And the literature that, that I've seen that have been published over the last four or five years suggests that that discount is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60% relative to the premium that was um, originally published. And I suppose, like, if we assume that those multiple premiums are a real thing, 
then the benefit of holding on to it, even though it has a lower risk premium than pre-publication, is that supposedly they're not correlated to each other. So there's value there. And uh, and I think what we've posited is we would assume that the uh, go forward uh, post-equilibrium premium will be more similar to the... Um, the uh, equity risk, risk premium, equity risk premium. Or the credit risk premium. premium. Yeah, yeah. Right, because in the in the back test, a lot of these end up being high, sh very very high sharps, right? And then we're we're looking at now point threes to point fours, um, if that. Yeah, I think this idea of reflexivity, right, which is what we're talking about. I think we we. This has been around for some time, uh, and uh, it counters the efficient market hypothesis. I think quite eloquently, and and people have different levels of intuition as to why, as to which one of those is actually true. But I, I think it might be helpful to us for us to go down a couple of concrete examples, and maybe I guess the most uh, the most poignant one would be value, because of of how long the winter has been for the value factor. Yeah, I mean, it has been just a terrifically uh, terrible um, winter for value. And um, I, I wish I had a chart up that uh, that I posted earlier. I could probably grab it out of Slack. But, um, I mean, if you examine, for example, the returns to the S&P, uh, I think it's the S&P core small value index, which actually has a bit of a, um, a quality tilt to it. Is this... Um, yeah, you can probably pull it Equity up. Equity-only indices, is this, is this the one, the figure six? Yeah, here, let me no, see. no, no, no. That, that it's, okay. it's, it's a stock charts chart that I dropped in the, the, one of the channels. But oh, anyway, yeah, I'll if, find it. Yeah, if you look at um, just the performance, the cumulative performance of owning this small cap value index fund relative to the market, just an S&P 500 index fund since, since 2018, I mean, it's been almost a straight line down, you know, um, we're talking like a over negative one sharp ratio. So this unbelievably persistent and painful negative trend. Right. And yeah, for some reason, it's uh, not I showing know. very well, but sort of flashing. But yeah, um, yeah there it is. Right. So the S&P small cap 600 value versus the S&P 500 ETF. Right, you've got a cumulative discount of thirty-five percent over the last almost three years, and um, so it's. I mean, but the, the owners of value obviously would look at this and say, "Well, you know, this happens every now and then," and it, it did. It happened in two thousand, um, or you know, sort of ninety-seven, ninety-eight, two thousand, during the the final run-up of the tech bubble. Obviously, if any effort to prioritize cheap stocks was just um, excruciatingly punished at, during those three years. And we're seeing a similar sort of dynamic play out here. And I, I will say after the, the 2000 crash, there was a short period when value really had a, a great run. Um, and, uh, but, but the, the fact is, I mean, if you look at value as a factor using many of the common value metrics, over even the last sort of 30 years, you really haven't observed any meaningful premium, especially if you compare it to its sort of anti-cousin growth. If you compare value against growth, they both basically delivered the same um, returns. And according to the economic explanation for the value premium, there's no reason why that should be, right? So 
you know, it's it, and keep in mind the value original value work was published by Fama and French. But I'm sure there's other value stuff that was published prior to that that was seminal to Fama and French. But the most cited work was published in the very early 1990s. And if you look at the returns to value versus growth since not that since that publication, they've been basically the same. But prior to that publication, the returns to value were massively larger than growth, right? Right. So just an, an example of how publication changes the state of the environment in which we all operate, right? We all operate in this substrate, which is markets, and we're all trading against each other. And, and, and the price of every stock and every commodity is priced at the margin. So the marginal demand by buyers and sellers. And what we observe is that post-publication, there are smart motivated arbitragers that are identifying this opportunity and there are flows driving into the opportunity to arbitrage it. And in many cases, once those flows go above a certain threshold, then it it completely arbitrages it away. Which I think, you know, this is one of the, when people talk about applying the scientific method to finance, there's one key factor that they're missing is that when you're trying to identify, you know, aggress- like pressure in an oil field you, and you understand the geological dynamics and you apply, you grab that data and then you apply it in order to, to, you know, exploit it or be able to pull something out of the ground by watching it, you're not changing the dynamics, right? Like geology doesn't change. Physics don't change. But the pure observation of markets by being a participant in it, this reflexivity that Richard has talked about, makes it such that if it, if enough people are applying those new things, you are going to get a degradation of returns, if, if not an inversion of those returns, right? You might call that the hard problem of investing, right? The idea of acting upon it and changing the, the very dynamic of the system that you're trying to engage with. That's why everybody I tries mean, to keep their alpha quiet, right? Because yeah. the moment you you say anything, it's gone in a heartbeat. Well, uh, yeah, you have to think about where you are in the adoption cycle, and think about as a as a as a manager potentially, you need to think about where you are in the adoption cycle and AUM <clears throat> fees versus performance fees and the sustainability of AUM in the face of performance. And so if you're very early in the adoption cycle and you can just do um, not simple rules, not the rules of tic-tac-toe, but sort of complicated, I'll call them, it's, it's a complicated problem, you know, meaning it's, you know, it's a bake, a bake a cake. Here's the recipe to bake a cake. Here's the recipe for the value factor. We're going to screen by these three things. We're going to do that quarterly. We're going to rebalance. And that should harvest the value factor. What that does not... Uh, but that does not uh, encompass is the fact that there's reflexivity in the marketplace and that the marketplace changes and the nature of the problem is complex. It's, it's the nature of, of raising a child. That's a complicated, that's a complex problem. Each child is different. Each parent is different. Each time in their life is different. It's complex. It has feedback loops. It's not just a complicated problem. And so if you're early and you have market dominance, you can profit quite handsomely by, marketing some easily understood cake recipes for these types of factors. But at some point, that's going to have some difficulty. I mean, DFA price to book, uh, we, we've seen various so specificity in the value factor failed first. Then it became more pervasive across any value factor that you tried to tried to manifest. 
and the you know potentially the better job you were doing, the worse it got. Um, and so that's a really you know these the markets are not a, a, a complicated issue; they're a complex issue. And that's I think that's a it's a nuanced point, but it's a very important point as people think about this over a very long period of time. And how are they going to adjust? How are you going to adjust your behavior in order to uh, reconcile that new piece of information? Is it just that you're going to do market cap? Well, well that has its problems. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the S&P took a long time to recover to the year 2000 highs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 11 years. Yeah. And those small cap stocks that were suffering mightily during the 2000 bull market, they were having their bear market, much like today, we're having a full-blown bear market in the midst of a full-blown bull market in another sector of stocks. It it just goes on. I, Rod, I can't hear you. I'm, I'm sorry. So this is where it gets really tough to disaggregate one of these two concepts, right? The one concept that I think every value investor has really come to terms with is that is the idea of no pain, no gain, no premium, right? You have to be willing to take a massive amount of pain to be able to extract this value premium. And so when you present an individual that has looked at all the evidence using scientific methods and and high P-value backtests and so so on, they'll look at that and say, well, there's been other periods that have been this painful and therefore that's okay, that's where I'm going to get my premium. But where does that end and where does overgrazing begin? When when is it that you've actually impacted the market so much that your belief that this is just a suppressed returns because that's the way the factor works? Or is it there's just too much money in this right now? I mean, out, out of all the factors, out of all the factors, and we've lived through this, right? Yep. The most intuitive is value. And we actually talked about this in the in, in our podcast with Wes and Toby, right? People like the idea of like, why do they like value? They like value because it's buying buy companies. You buy a cheap company. It's a good yeah. business. You know, buy it cheap. So is it any is it any um, surprise that the premium, that's one of the premiums that has gotten hardest hit? How much it of it is probably, the actual premium? How much of it was overgrazing? And it's probably a little bit of both, right? But it's tough to extract yourself from, from that reality. But the truth is that Everybody wants to be Warren Buffett in one way or another. And that's the first thing they're going to sign up for. Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point, which is the fact that value has suffered perhaps the most out of all of the well-established factors makes sense given how it is the most intuitive one for most people to get behind the idea of buying something that's cheap and has intrinsic value to it. So it was probably the first one to become overgraced. And it was, and it's still being sort of uh, uh, inverted and abandoned as it, it has gone through abandonment for the longest of times because it was so mass adopted early on. So that's a really good point. Yeah, you know what? Actually, can I share my screen? Because um, Claude Erb published a paper a few years ago that has since been taken down from uh, SSRN. And I remember he uh, he had threw a little bit of a temper tantrum about something and pulled it up, pulled it off. I think, but. Um, how do I? Here we go. Uh, where is it? There it is. Yeah. So this is a key slide from that presentation. So he just pulled from the Fama French database and he looked at the rolling annualized ten-year return to the traditional long-short factor strategies: value, the equity risk premium, um, trend. Sorry, big up being large momentum. 
uh, size and large value. And what he showed was that momentum started very strong with an annualized return in the very beginning of about 12.5% a year and has subsequently had, at least by 2011, declined to over the, the previous 10 years to 2011, an annualized premium of about 7.5%. All of these are pre-trading costs and pre-borrowing costs and all the other problems that we're not going to dwell on today with traditional back backtesting methods. But let, let's just call it sort of a 12.5 to 7.5. So the premium sort of declined by about 5% over time. The blue line is the equity risk premium, which has also declined over time, and which we can talk about some reasons why that might be the case. And then large value is the yellow line, where started off with about a 6% annualized premium. And by the end of this, so this is this is 2011. So we're nine years later. We haven't really seen value wake up much at all. And by 2011, it had already sort of demonstrated a almost zero premium. And, and um, there's been lots of published research in the last little while about the fact that the size premium uh, as originally published, actually there were some flaws in the publication or the methodology actually in the data. Um, so it was it was pretty overstated in the original publication, and then subsequent studies have sort of shown that there actually was never really a size premium. And then if you control for a bunch of other factors, then you might be able to surface the size premium, et cetera. But you know, just a really good example of um, just markets becoming more efficient in general, and investors catching on to um, a variety of these premia and um, the effects that, that that had on those. Um, uh, on those, the size of those premium over time. Well, yeah. Think about think about the discussion that you had with Marat too about um, institutional players coming into commodity markets and 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 allocators changing the structure of commodity markets, the different structures of the market in in China A shares versus China A shares versus H shares, right? So the more institutionalized a market gets, it actually changes the structure. It changes the types of um, risk premia that might be afforded. Um, and maybe you can dig into that. I I'm going by memory. I, I think you probably had a deeper discussion, but I think, no, it's a, yeah, it's a really good example. And so in the very early two thousands, there was a trend towards institutions allocating to commodity indices. And the biggest one was the, the GSCI, the Goldman Sachs commodity index. And Marat and his, um, co-author, uh, by the last name, Hey, I believe um, they studied what the what impact this financialization of commodities had uh, from the early 2000s until the peak of financialization and the peak of the commodity markets in 07, 08. I haven't read the paper, so I'm just going by what I'm summarizing what Marat said. So I may be making some assumptions about the dates and stuff, but generally I'm directionally correct, I think. Um, but what happened was because the commodity indices systematically invested at the very front of the curve. So they bought the front contract and then they consistently sort of rolled those contracts forward as you need to do with futures markets. Then they pushed the, the front month up relative to the back month and it created this backwardation, which then created a term premium in commodity markets. So you could, it here you have a situation where in the beginning, at least the, very active in people investing in commodities changed the structure of commodities to make it profitable for a while where previously it had not been profitable. And it's uh, so that it's was a really a great, a great example of reflexivity in that. So you had commodity producers and users engaging in um, hedging their business needs 
Then you had a new entrant to the market, which is a, a financial investor who then started buying uh, those types of things in front of the producer-consumer relationship. They weren't particularly fussed on being one month out or just kind of adjusting. Maybe I'll take three months if it saves me. I don't really, I, my, my production is going to be solid in that realm. Mm-hmm. So they start to move out the curve, which then changes the structure of the curve and then allows for a slightly different risk premia or a risk premia at all to manifest and then a different one. And then, I mean, obviously we've seen all kinds of chaos in uh, <laughs> negative oil and delivery issues and some anomalies uh, to be true, but it, it's a, it's a very interesting sort of anecdotal, if, if it's anecdotal, but a, an example. Of and how- then like a, a secondary, a second level on that, of course, was that Deutsche Bank came out about five or six minutes or years later, recognizing this phenomenon. And then they, they deployed a smart carry version of a commodity mm-hmm. index, right? Which allocated to various months to optimize the uh, the positive carry on the index, are being the GSCI investors, right? So- right. Which is this example of the market coming up with complicated solutions to address each issue, but each one of those complicated answers, where there's a recipe to solve that last issue, has a very short shelf life. Exactly. And rather than and, thinking and think about this from a standpoint of the idea is that you have to change as the market structures change. <clears throat> Go ahead, Rod. Yeah, no, I'm just, I agree with that. I think the tough part here is that it's become the whole investment process has gone from uh, discretionary cowboys that have, you know, their wet wear, they're not willing to give out. Um, Put, creates the signals that invest and buy. And then you have the institutional mandate saying, well, this guy's got a good five-year track record and he seems really smart, so I'm going to invest with him. To this, like, well, that wet word didn't work out. I didn't never actually understood his process. I want more clarity. I want more uh, transparency. You start looking at the academic work and you see, well, I can get behind that because I'm an intelligent academic myself and I, it's transparent. I know exactly what you're doing. And the more I know, the more comfort I can give my board. And then you start getting this, this buy-in in in this belief that this is like like true hard science right and because it's so academically vigorous and you're getting these results and then there's this this economic intuition behind it that there's of course that how can you how can you argue against it there's this massive buy-in that it is a hard thing you cannot arb away behavioral uh flaws you cannot arb away these risk metrics and yet that's exactly what's happened because of the, the necessary buy-in at the highest levels of assets under management, right? So all of a sudden, this, this axiom is not real. It doesn't work, right? The very but virtues, you- the very qualities of these strategies that make them so compelling, great, great story, great economic intuition, um, high status. Solid recent performance. Solid recent performance. <laughs> High status authors, peer adoption, well within the Overton window, other institutions of similar uh, objectives adopting similar strategies. These are all the qualities that allocators look for because they think that there's safety in that. In reality, those are the very qualities of strategies that should be ringing all of the alarm bells because if it makes it compelling to invest in and if it makes it easy for all of these big institutions to invest in, 
then they probably are deploying massive amounts of capital toward those anomalies. And there are being a way and eventually inverting the sign of the expected premium. So, and there's so another layer to this that I would just add is that even those who might be somewhat the wiser to this phenomenon and understand that perhaps there's overgrazing because of the intuition, the career risk that is involved in shying away from what's established in academia and, and, and kind of grazing with the herd is just too large for any one of these larger players, especially in the institutional space, to say, you know what? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play in this pool. I'm gonna go over here in this obscure sort of arena. Well, and also fast forward the amount of AUM one can get, right? So I've seen institutional. You, you if you don't have at least a five year track record as a discretionary manager, you're not getting any assets, right? But what you find now is that there are large institutions to be unnamed that have published uh, tons of white papers that can just say, based on this white paper, I'm going to have a zero track record fund that we're going to launch today and immediately get billions of dollars, right? So this is, uh, we've seen a bunch of papers that show not only pre and post publication, but rather pre, like pre launching of a product of those of what they showed and then post what happens. And again, it's tough to disaggregate this is another, to another topic maybe useful for this conversation, but how much of that was true factors that they found and how much of that was just nonsense. Um, but, you know, I, that's one, just to cover your point, Richard, the point that I also wanted to make is that when you're looking at these factors, we go back to value, right? What was the first one that really got, the one that got pummeled was price to book or uh, book to price. Now, what, what happened there? Mike alluded to the fact that there's not just that one parameter within value. There's many different ways of looking at value, right? So in in our firm, we've always tried to think of ways to stay ahead of the crowd, right? Where most acceptance hasn't gotten there yet on the quantitative side. For example, the idea of ensembles that we've spoken about over and over again in the past is one way of minimizing the chances that you're going to be specifically wrong about an overgrazed parameter set in a factor, in this case, price to book. And you're going to be broadly correct about other ways of extracting that fact, or price to sales, enterprise value, EBITDA, and so on, right? So when you compare those other metrics a couple of years ago, you were like, oh my God, there's there's better ways. We can still be value guys, but it's just, these are better. Well, the moment you start talking about those, everybody jumps on the new better thing that then has that reflexive nature to it. But the key is to be ahead of the curve. The key is to try to be there before anybody else has. And if these factors are actually real, Right. If there if there if there is this value factor, indeed, then a way of that that I think still hasn't been overgrazed because we've had these conversations with institutional managers where we say, well, we should have as many different value parameters or to, to try to hug that signal because we're going to be invested in factors, signals that may not be over overused just yet or in momentum. Look across a full term structure of momentum, full term structure of trend. And in that way, you're you're getting exposures to the factor in parameter sets that are just not used generally by the public currently. And when you try to talk about it that way, people are like, no, no, no. The only true factor for value is price to book. What are you talking about? I, I could use any one of them and they're just going to be good enough going forward. I think we because should just- Because they're not, they're not actually seeing the, the, the effect of the overcrowding. Yeah. I right. think we should just make it clear that we, we, it might sound like we're harping on value. No, no. But this what is what everybody understands. Yeah, for sure. Because value may be the most intuitive of, of all these these 
well-known factors. But the fact of the matter is we've seen this across the factor landscape and we've seen products that have been launched and that have turned what was before perhaps called alpha has become beta or smart beta and have become commoditized. So I, I, I don't want to seem like we're, we're, we're beating up uh, value and, and, and there's well, actually- The funny thing is that like commoditization itself in a non-reflexive world or in a world where the premium exists because of a risk explanation is not in itself a concern, right? Like it can, it, everyone wants all of these premia to be commoditized and bring all the fees way down. And that way they get, have their cake and eat it too, right? And they don't, they don't have to pay anybody for economics on it. But the fact is the second that it's made accessible and it's, and it's made cheap so that, you know, more and more people can get on board it just you you sacrifice in premium and and diversification what you get in lower fees and it's this vicious circle. There's one other dimension to this too, which I always find particularly fascinating, and that is that the anomalies that are most likely to be published are the ones that are the most economically significant. Right value when it was published had especially small value notwithstanding the insane construction methodology of the original Fama French value factor, but it, it had a reasonable, um, reasonably high premium. It was very attractive and it got, it got published. And then, you know, along came momentum and a few of the other factors, whatever, but the ones that get published and get attention are the ones at the highest T stats. But sadly having a really high T stat means that it is more attractive to everybody. <laughs> Right, it's more likely to get to, to have other papers published on it. It's more likely to, to for the big credentialed uh, names in academia to want to put their weight behind this particular strategy because it backs up their uh, resume. So it it attracts more attention, and attention is the enemy of sustainable alpha. So to the extent that you are trying to harvest the most powerful premia, that actually may be exactly wrong. In fact, what you instead might want to do is look for ones that are too small to attract much attention, you know, just example, under the threshold, just under the threshold. Absolutely. Um, and Lop- Lopez de Prado published a, a neat uh, paper on, on this as well. Um, now he sort of framed it as a type one versus type two error and everyone focused on type one and, you know, we should all be, be focused on type two. And so you, instead of using a 5% cut uh, threshold, you should use a 15% cut threshold to identify or, or accept that something is worth trading. Um, but, but part of that is that you're also then going to get strategies that are below the typical threshold that haven't caught the attention of the big academics that haven't published in the major journals and therefore are unlikely to have a tidal wave of arbitrage capital flowing towards it. And so you're minimizing the chance of, of, of inversion, right? right. So how, how, do you, how do you find anomalies that are not quite statistically significant? They, they're not published in the journals. Like the fact is you kind of got to do your own work. And then of course you get into, well, you know, there's all sorts of problems in p-hacking and how, how you, uh, frame the experimental design and stuff that I'm sure we'll touch on another time. Well, no, I mean, we don't, can we touch upon it briefly? I, I think one of the key things that gives a sense of comfort in the original Fama French work is that 
there weren't a lot of people doing that stuff back then because access to that data set was really tough to get. It, there weren't a lot of people looking at it from that perspective. They were really breaking some barriers there. And they did come at it from an honest economic theory perspective that then they used this da data to try and validate it. And Presumably. when they used the data, presume, well, more than today, right? Like, I mean, that. Sure. Let's assume what you're, uh, I'm just, not going to argue. Just, just by pure computational power, the ability to have as many back as you can do, yep. uh, the type of data set that you had, and the fact that they were academics and trying to, to get some sort of credibility rather than use that in order to, to make themselves rich necessarily, you would have more credence to the economic phenomenon and that they use this process as a scientific method purely to say, hey, is this, is my theory valid? Let me use this data and test it once and see, oh yeah, look at that. That's a high P value. This is my thesis has been validated by the data, right? Whereas I'm not sure practitioners today with the amount of access that we have, the ability to use as many backtesting processes as we do, and everybody or a lot, a large portion of the population wanted to get published by having that high T stat, high, high P value. Um, whether that today, when somebody comes up with an economic theory of what their back test showed, which one came first? Or if they did come at it from an honest perspective, how much, how, how many people like him were? It's just very, it's just very challenging. I mean, even if we, if we assume a very high level of intellectual honesty among academics and practitioners who are publishing research, it's still very hard to disentangle the independent thinking from what came before. I mean, the whole nature of science is that there's a canon uh, there's a canon of, of research and publications and, and um, a paradigm that you're supposedly sort of building on, right? So if you're publishing research, typically you're already reading a lot of the or the, um, the the papers, the seminal papers, the follow-on papers. So you've, you you know, oftentimes a lot of the academics have already been playing with the data for, not playing with, but like using the data for analysis for a large exposed number of years. To. Yeah, they've been exposed to the data exactly for, for many years. And so you build an intuition there that's very hard to to be independent of that intuition when you're forming hypotheses. Like you may do your best as an academic uh, to, or a practitioner to try to form a genuine economic hypothesis that's not informed by the, any sort of backtesting or any sort of data that you've seen before. But if you've already been exposed to the data for a long time, it's just really hard to separate yourself from your experience and, and generate a genuinely independent hypothesis to test would you agree yeah yeah i think you become it's it's also it's all human nature as well right it's tough to be the lone wolf that comes up with a theory that nobody's ever talked about and nobody's ever and you don't have when you expound on it nobody's like nodding and saying yeah i totally agree in fact i also think this way and here's the many white papers as to why it's a lot easier to to be slightly influenced to the point where you come to a conclusion, and then you do your back. I'm like, look what I sh look what I have here. Isn't it amazing? And there's thousands of academics and practitioners saying, yeah, I'm also there with you. Everybody else is crazy. This is the way to go. Right. It's so a really it is, really it is good just point, a, Rodrigo. It's a because I think behavioral. Totally, and we've experienced this firsthand, and we've we obviously are friends with with many other investors who are uh, who have 
a lot of faith in their own uh, take or approach on investing. And I think everybody tries to be intellectually honest and or the people that we know, most of them are try to be intellectually honest. But the, the reality is, if you're not sufficiently close to the Overton window, and so you don't have enough sort of other people that, that you respect uh, also embracing a, that way of thinking, then it's it's almost impossible to raise compromises your credibility. It does, but it also just like people don't like to be lone wolves. So it's this yeah, weird. Yeah. The asset management business don't? is this weird animal. <laughs> Some people do, <laughs> but it's this weird animal where if you're comfortable investing in it because the other people that you respect are also comfortable investing in it, and, and you've got access at a reasonable price and it's been made available to you, you probably don't want to own it. You know, if it's something that the, the by virtue of being new and different and not having other people adopt it is not sufficient to say you should, you should own it. Right. Yeah. But it is, I think, ironically, a factor to consider, right? If it's something that you strongly believe in, you've gone down a rabbit hole, you've got good research and good backing, you've got strong intuition on it. And you're not seeing it anywhere else, that's probably a really good place to look. And I'll give you anecdote, you know, the, the plural of anecdote is not data. And I, I hesitate to even talk about this, but as an example, our funds uh, historically have, have taken advantage of and still do make use of the features of skewness and seasonality, right? Now, skewness and seasonality, there's a couple of papers on skewness in, the, in academia, mm -hmm. but you never see skewness talked about in any sort of all premium strategies or CTA strategies. No one ever talks about it. It's very under the radar. Seasonality is almost like voodoo. It's like what, like astrology or, you know, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Right. But it's phases of the moon or some nonsense. But the reality is that, that seasonality and skewness have the same economic and statistical uh, premia as the much more broadly known trend and carry strategies, and or at least historically. But over the last three to five years, skewness and seasonality have been terrific performers, and trend and carry have been dogs. So, you know, again, just anecdotes, but there's lots of money flowing into trend strategies for crisis alpha or this or that, and trend has been, you know, in the why, dog. Why are you telling everybody that? Please can we edit that, that out from the record? Edit that out. Well, I think see, Buck Buck is raising another point too. Mike, uh, now you just ahead. made it sure. real for people. God, yeah. Right. You're, so you so J talk about your analysis now. So yeah, no, but, <laughs> no, that's not the question. But but it is one of thinking of this from the standpoint of okay, so something goes through the process of publication, or this is what I'm going to interpret his question to be selfishly, for whatever reason. I don't care why. Um, <laughs> So, so if we think about the list, list the, the the premium we might be able to harvest, right? And, and who's paying, and what the size of that is, and what the barriers to arbitraging that might be. So, I know when we started very early, we, we trade lots of you know eighty markets and lots of um, currencies and whatnot. But when you when you think about the barriers to arbitrage, what are the barriers for other participants to come in and? share that lunch, that free lunch for you. So, so the rebalancing premium, I think is what, is what um, Buck is referring to is when you publish your paper, eventually when you publish it, if ever, because it'll obviously be, it'll eviscerate any premium that, that would be there from the rebalancing. 
That's it. Exactly. I'm holding it back now. There's no way I'm holding it. <laughs> because we're just not going to publish it. It's out there. It works. You'll just have to take our word for it. Exactly. Um, but but again, this kind of comes back to Corey's question too long ago. Like, who pays for that? So what's the barrier? And if we think about all these things, well, how easy is this thing that you're going to deploy? How easy is it for it to be replicated? And then for subsequent assets to flow to it in order to take that free lunch and split it amongst the commons, if you will, right? And and take it away from you. So if we think about that, what would they be? I mean, obviously in any kind of single stock type thing, you've got ETFs, the proliferation of ETFs and easy rules. And so tons of capital can flow to that area. I think rebalancing is harder. I mean, large pools of assets are not particularly well-equipped to transport the liquidity they might have in their portfolio across asset classes in order to um, arb that that lack well, of liquidity. Active risk constraints and board constraints and actuarial constraints and all kinds of constraints. That so that helps. But what, are there anything? Are there any other ideas about that? Anything else trigger in your in your minds? Um, I'm just kind of thinking this. Well, I mean, what's triggering for me is I'd be a lot more worried about somebody arbitraging the rebalancing premium and risk parity if we could get anybody to write a goddamn ticket for risk parity. Like, I, I don't Precisely. actually think. I don't actually Precisely. think I don't have any concern about um, the the opportunity in in global risk parity across sixty five or eighty futures markets going away anytime soon. Um, Agreed. <laughs> not this popular. Is received with vitriol at every corner. Well, uh-huh. this is an example of where things where this is why you want to cover the whole term structure thing, right? Let's say you do a risk parity strategy, you publish it, and you publish that you're going to re- be rebalancing uh, on the on the last business day of every month. Right, you're telling me that somebody's not going to arb that out. If everybody gets on that side, that that premium is going to kind of go away, and then it's going to get so bad that there's going to be other people trying to eat their lunch in, in reverse. Where right? there's there's flows going in, you know that it's happening, and you're going to take advantage of that. Right? F squared. So how do you? How I do thought you, everybody had just embraced Corey's tranching concept. Is that? Am I wrong about that? It's, again, I thought that not, was widely no. adopted. He's still I, banging his head against the wall on that. There's <laughs> only like five of us that actually and, believe and in that If stuff. someone knows, he knows. But That's the right. point is, right? <laughs> There's a guy who you knows. Really, that guy knows. <laughs> if you're going to be rebalancing, right? If there is a rebalancing premium, I mean, you don't you don't want to necessarily publish your schedule. You don't want to do it in a consistent basis. You might want to randomize it. You might want to caterpillar it so your flow isn't that strong. Like there's a wide variety of reasons why you want to be obscure, even about the rebalancing approach. Because if you if you do make it popular and you do show a back test that rebalancing on the 27th of every month is the time to do it, it will go away, right? It will go away. But I think so, that the yes. rebalancing side of it is is well outside of what we might call the ivory tower bias, right? This idea that it's sure. so well so well established that everybody's going to... But uh, what is one to do then, Adam, with the, with the to, to, to shy away from this ivory tower bias, this idea that people are, are, are just going to stay within the uh, middle of the herd? Well, I think we... I hinted at earlier, and you know, this is where... This is the journey we've been on for the last 18 months or, or a couple of years. But the idea is to identify, to create tools and have a sufficiently coherent experimental design to allow you to identify um, the types of anomalies that most other investors are just not well suited to identify, right? We've taken to calling them bespoke factors, but I mean, 
they've got certain qualities that that distinguish them from traditional factors, right? So if you think about a traditional factor paper, typically it's, you know, grounded in some economic theory, it's got some great economic rationale, and the types of factors or anomalies that we might search for are not grounded in any kind of theory. We can't really look at them and say, this is why it's, this is why A leads to B reliably, but this, they emerge from the data and they're sufficiently strong and um, persistent through time that they are compelling, right? But no individual factor is, is compelling enough. You still want to take you know, many dozens or hundreds or in, in fact, thousands of these smaller bespoke factors and, and use them all together, right? And another thing that factor type investing uh, has in common is that it it looks for common relationships across all the securities mm-hmm. in the market. So think about traditional cross-sectional sorts, right? You're trying to apply the same sorting mechanism on all the stocks in the market. You're going to take belong the top quintile or top decile and short the bottom uh, quintile or decile. And um, so you're, you're, you're sorting them all on the same characteristics. Whereas the way that we would think about it is, well, each of these markets has a unique group of agents that are trading them for different reasons. And those agents manifest in different types of explanatory variables for each market, right? And you need the right tools to be able to identify those and validate them. Um, but they're unlikely, they're much, much less likely to be found. None of them on their own are particularly strong, they're very unlikely to ever be published in a journal. But when you put them all together, they're extremely powerful. Um, another thing that factor investing tends to have, and there are some exceptions to this, but tends to have is a simple relationship structure. So for example, we're going to do a uh, a, a, a sort on price to book. And it's going to be ordinal rank and we're going to take hold. We're only going to hold those that are in the top decile. And we're only going to short those who are in the bottom decile. And, and that is the relationship we've got. In other words, all of the stocks in the top decile have a expected return of one. All of the stocks in the bottom decile have an expected return of negative one. And every other stock has an expected return of zero. Right. So that's a very simple relationship structure. It could be like a linear relationship structure. So like, uh, for trend following, it might be stronger trends imply that we should have a, a higher exposure, right? A higher but expected return from that stronger trend. Higher expected return implying higher exposure, exactly. Um, but you can see these are simple relationships. And many relationships are not simple. They've got complex structures, like maybe they're a U or some other type of structure, right? So you need the right tools to identify that. Um, and also... Most factors are sort of long-term average, right? You're not trying to time the factors. You're not saying that that stocks with these characteristics tend to outperform under these conditions and underperform in these other conditions. It's long-term average. You're just going to stick with it. And bespoke factors have the quality of, of being conditioned on different conditions, right? Um, Marat and I talked about a really simple one in our conversation where, for example, you're conditioning the trend signal on the direction of carry. So if carry is positive and trend is positive, you want to be long. If carry is negative and trend is negative, you want to be short. And if you if you use those two conditions, you get substantially better performance than you get from just using trend or carry on their own, right? So you can imagine th- that type of thing can be applied to these complex factors as well, right? But what's what? Sorry, I, let me know if you if you're not done. 
I'm not done, but it's okay. The last one is, well, the last one is just the idea that, and we're, I think we're probably going to try and have another conversation about this topic of lots of things to discuss on this, but the idea that traditional empirical finance, where most people find factors and evaluate which factors they want to allocate funds to are all validated using an experimental design that only uses in-sample analysis to to show you the strength of the relationships. And there are some really interesting fundamental challenges with that, that I think we've taken some strong leaps to, to cross the chasm there. But in any case, you should only make, be making decisions about which of these types of factors you want to trade using robust out-of-sample methods, um, analogous to those that are used as sort of best practice in data science. So that's that's it. This is where you can see how this academic pull has really blinded a lot of practitioners, right? Because when I think about this idea of the theory of factors, is that you have this blanket statement because you if you have to have a theory that generalizes, otherwise it's not a theory. You can't have a a, a theory for an asset class. You have to have a nice, eloquent single formula that explains it all, right? So momentum exists because people heard or whatever behavioral factor that uh, that you want to pull from. Um, and so I'm going to have a thesis that if I uh, rank asset securities over the last 12 months, top decile, bottom decile, that that should have an excess return. And lo and behold, you do find that, right? You find it in U.S. equities, right? And you find it in European equities, so it generalizes to Europe. But then you find, you, do you find it in Japan? Oh, well, all of a sudden that doesn't work. But let's not worry about that one because it generalizes enough that we can call this academic work and validate all of it and just let's just not talk about the ugly stepchild over here, right? And then when you take it to a granular level, does it work in every single security? Does it work in every single asset class on the, on the security trend? Does this trend work in every single futures contract? And does it work all the time, right? Does it always continue? All these questions, all of a sudden, when you start nitpicking at them and asking the right questions, it all falls apart. Like that's this, this blanket academic theory ends up being fugazi. Even right? even listen to the language, right? And I'm not picking on you, but I, this is what everybody uses. But listen to the tense. It works. No, it worked. Right? It worked <laughs> sure. on the data that you examined, where you fit the model on the data that you examined, and then you showed the in-sample fit of the model. And lo and behold, there was a good fit. Right. But you don't have you can't say anything about how those um, characteristics or how those sorts or how those models are going to perform out of sample because you haven't your experimental design does not provide information to give you guidance on that. Right. So and I hear this all the time. Everybody says um, it works instead of it worked and, and how we talk about it informs how we think about it. And I think that mm-hmm. that is a misguided way to think about it. I think this dovetails well with, to shift gears maybe just slightly, the moment that we see in markets. I mean, we, we've seen the uh, markets dynamic change in meaningful ways. We're, we're dealing with negative interest rates. We're, we're, we're seeing some of these market microstructures change how market participants behave and how mm-hmm. that reflects back. So I think this uh, this framework to think about uh, investing and finding sustainable edges going forward 
tie that back into some of these uh, changes that we've seen so far. And I think uh, a lot of the, the changes are, are kind of well summarized in the paper that uh, Corey wrote that you you had a chat with him about. So the liquidity cascades, the aspects of uh, dealer gamma and the rise of passive and, and all those aspects that have changed or, or seem to have changed fundamentally the, the structure of markets. Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting dimension. And um, I think, and Corey and I have talked about this ad nauseum, but uh, both on on camera and off, but they, I, the whole Kaplan theory of markets, like all the, whole, the entire canon right. of efficient markets is predicated on efficiency of stock. In other words, all securities everywhere are priced appropriate to, to deliver the appropriate amount of risk per unit of diversification adjusted return, okay? That is what all of the academic theory is, is built upon. All the stuff right back from the 1950s to today is predicated on that. And I think what a lot of the more recent research, and, and obviously Mike Green's been all over this, you've got a lot of the guys in the option space who've been very familiar with this for a long time, but we're starting to see a shift in thinking to the fact that in fact, the price of every security is set at the margin by flows, right? So markets are efficient on flows. And when you think about it, that's kind of what we should expect, right? The markets are a price setting mechanism where the price of anything that you want to sell is going to be set by the price that somebody else is willing to buy it at and vice versa. Did the trade clear? Exactly. Markets are efficient insofar as trades clear. Well, how do they clear? They clear because we found some price or there is some amount of flows on the buy side to match the flows on the offer side. We got the fills. Yeah. We got the fills, exactly, right? So, and I, you know, I had this whole thesis that I didn't bother to explore, but the trend following really is an expression of efficiency on flows rather than efficiency on, on the stock of money, right? Or on equilibrium prices. Um, but it all sort of amounts to the same thing. You've got, if you can find features or, or pieces of information, variables that help you to triangulate or, or set expectations about the, the direction and quantity of flows, that is the, these are the features that are likely to be most explanatory, especially in the relatively short term, right? It's possible that Benjamin Graham is right. And in the long term, markets are indeed a weighing machine, right? But the reality is that most people's time horizon isn't the long-term. It's the next three years, five years, 10 years, and that's not the long-term where the markets are a weighing machine. Over horizons like that, it is all about flows. And It's a voting machine. It's a voting machine, exactly. And so if you don't account for features, one of which is probably trend um, and, and mean reversionary type dynamics, um, and other higher moments. But if you're not accounting, and, and, and lots of other stuff like information from the option surface, and you know, there's lots of attention right now from squeeze metrics and a few of his metrics. And I know two or three people that have replicated and built their own indices on that. And I think all of that is great, right? And I think we need to constantly be building our tool set and adapting to the primary forces that are at work in market. Like I would even argue, and I'm not, I'm stealing this, I think, from Mark Guzman who posted on this in, on Twitter earlier, but early value investors were also counting on flows, right? You're buying a stock that That's you expect others to come in and buy and reset yes. the price higher. 
Yes, Keynesian. So exactly. It's not that this is a new phenomenon. It's probably that the sources of intermediate term flows have shifted from traditional active value investors to other dynamics such as dealer gam and other stuff. But it was always about flows and it's only about stock at horizons that nobody really cares about. Right. And I think when we say individuals care about the short term, I just want to clear up that this means everybody cares about the short term, right? There is no pension plan that oh, doesn't yeah, no, care no, about the, the next three to five years. who have a job supervising the pension plan care about the next three years of, of the amount of plans, the amount of plans that have gone out the window yeah. as of Everybody this year uh, are unbelievable. Just the amount of conversations I've had where like, well, what about your long-term plan? Well, the board thought it was best now that we know that the markets have changed. Well, what we about the management shift that we've seen, right? There's a constant 100%. management, whether all the way up, there's a top dog. He has, he or she has a certain uh, view on how things should be run, build a team like that. Then you have the turnover in the team itself. I mean, we've experienced this for quite some time. And so the, the consistency with There's no which, continuity. Right. And, and when you see continuity, it is truly organizational alpha. Mm. Like I would, I would argue that that is probably where it starts. It starts with somebody like, like a, uh, Yale and Swenson, and may- maybe he was lucky. An alpha dog that never but- retires, or an organizational structure that doesn't care about the individual. It's one of those two, right? Right. But yeah, but basically, we're seeing a principal agent problem at mass scale. Mm-hmm. Is what you're going yeah. to say? Well, this is the whole point. Is that that's, that's the market. Pervasive. That that's is pervasive. that is the market's clearing is the only thing. Have you guys listened to Ben Eifert with Corey? I just listened to it this weekend, right? But if you want to if you want to get a story about how flows influence the premium that you see on the volatility surface, it's a great podcast where he you know, he goes through like at this point, yes, if you're seeing these characteristics, you're going to get a premium, you know, nobody really cares about it, nobody was talking about it, you can actually capture that. And then it became popular. CBOE comes out with an index. The moment they publish that index, you can see that a flat line hasn't had any return. And you just, all these stories, you can just add them up, right? That 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 seems more like prop trady, right? It's not, we're not talking about value. We're talking about the volatility. So like those, that's prop trady stuff. It's not going to, we're not going to be able to R about these other factors. You can R about anything, right? You can, you can have enough dollars chasing absolutely anything to make it obsolete for but a these while. Are very, but, then, well, there's, but then there's, they come back, right? There's, there's steps like things, some things are easier to arb than others, right? That, that's, sure. that's the point. How much capital does, is required to arb it away? How easily can that capital be established from the standpoint? Can I gather other investors? Is it easy? Just are the prop firms going to do it? Structural barriers. Right. Like how can I assemble enough capital to do it and have people excited about it, et cetera. So, so th- there's definitely a, 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 um, a continuum there. It's also inconvenient from a political standpoint. I mean, what are, what is the purpose of markets, right? It's to, it's to move capital from savers to smart allocators of capital. Is right? it? And is it? No, no, that is the stated <laughs> purpose of markets. Yeah, right? Right. It is what allows this Fed, it'll, <laughs> what allows Powell and what allows the Treasury to step in at every opportunity and preserve the, the stability of markets because markets are supposed to serve this sanctimonious um, place 
in mm -hmm. modern economies, right? They're mm -hmm. for the efficient deployment of capital. And if we if we pull away the mask and expose markets as just um, you know uh, commons where mis incentivized agents are allocating for to meet their own ends and where the equilibrium prices don't actually provide any signaling value for what's going on in the economy etc then markets lose their utility and the those that own the markets which is like you know 400 people in the world uh, obviously do not have the public support for supporting markets that they would otherwise have if markets are continued to be perceived as a public utility. So there's um, this goes all the way up to the top. Keep in mind, the president is, has a principal agent problem too. They have a four-year term and they're supposed to be setting policy that is that lives on far after they're out of office. Um, what well, we're hoping that the stock market is doing so well right now. It's, it's hopeful that the conflict's offset and you get some signal from the society as a whole. Yeah, yeah the the hundred year the hundred year uh, weighing machine is what we're hoping for. But yeah. so, what is a large pension plan to do, right? Okay, so we've addressed how chasing chasing uh, an anomaly with too much money can invert it. And here you are, you're a, you're a large public pension plan with the billions of dollars, and you're faced with a reality of the academic work and some of these pre premiums that have existed in situ. And then you're faced with a massive amount of money that you need to deploy. How do you attack that problem? I, I, think I it, have an answer, but well, no, what I mean, is the, the best and only way to it? it comes down to whether you can get comfortable with the experimental design of the firm that you are engaged with as a, a prospective investor, right? And um, I mean, part of this is that, it, that institutions in some ways are the authors of their own frictions here, because we know many firms like some in Canada, for example, that openly tell you in advance, whatever you tell me at this meeting, we're going to turn around and use internally. We're going to steal all your IP. And um, so, you know, don't, don't buyer beware or seller beware, I guess, in this case. Right. And. I guess I think one of the things that Swenson did really, really well, and this may actually be the, the primary source of Yale's edge, mm. was that Swenson partnered with funds as an equity investor for, for essentially forever. With right? the mind, with, with the together. head guy. Yeah, exactly. I remember this. That's right. Exactly. With a brilliant mind that would be able to find unique edges for the rest of his life. And I want to partner up with you until the day. And the only, to, the, to the big reason why that was, there's obviously like alignment of incentives, but the real reason why alignment of incentives is so important is because it allows the manager to open his kimono because what really matters is the process. The returns are bullshit. Like over time horizons that anybody cares about, the returns don't tell you anything. Sadly, that is the truth. What matters is the process and the experimental design that, that gives you the confidence, sufficient confidence, enough data over enough market environments that where this particular approach sustained its edge out a sample that allows you to get comfortable that there might be something there. And if I'm an institution, you know, I might really buy into this guy's process and this guy's experimental design, this guy's methodology and this guy's edge. But I still want to spread my bets around, right? I still want to have 
a dozen or two dozen managers in different fields with different points of view who are attacking the problem in slightly different ways. Or some of them are going to be just off base. Others are going to be, you know, are going to get it right. And on average, if you're if you've got conviction and invested in partnerships with your managers and you're going to stick through it through thick and thin, then you've got a shot. Well, this idea that you can buy uh, factors now out of the can from a swap at a big bank, you're buying somebody, some brilliant mind's old idea. It's obsolete the moment you buy it canned, right? Mm -hmm. What you should be looking for is the manager or the management team that proves to have a process to continue to discover those edges wherever they may come. That's, and we've moved away from that because like, I don't need these, these obscure, brilliant managers that I need to do a lot of work for. The academics have done the work for me. I can just buy that from Credit Suisse as a swap. Yeah, and that show's right. over, right? It's demonstrably yeah. over. You just gotta look at any composite factor indices, that's over. Yeah. If it ever existed, it doesn't that's exist now. That's something that actually we were having a chat and hit, like you, the the um, function of the 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 board managing whatever the endowment is not necessarily a profit maximization function. It is in some cases in the endowments in some very thoughtful Yale like uh, endowments. Bowdoin's endowment has very aggressive Notre Dame's probably another one very very thoughtful input. Um, but in many cases, that's that's not that's simply not the case. So it's OPM, and the function of the board seems to be more one of cover your ass and best practices. Well, by definition, best practices means the most common practices used or most pervasive uh, um, thought processes used across all endowments, which then leads to well, I need some factors because everybody has some factors. How, how do I do that inexpensively? And so the, the system itself is a, a bit flawed in that, in that, in the way at which it, it sort of fosters the management of this money. What's the objective, right? Just give me the objective function and then we can go from there. And so that, that's a really tough problem to solve. And there's, there's a lot of thoughtful, you know, if we think about university endowments anyway, there's a lot of thoughtful university endowments who have done a great job. Um, and then there's ones but who I think are- they solved it. Like and I think you said like so, several of them who've solved it, and they solved it by making clear that their allocations are permanent capital. Right, I'm mm -hmm. committed to you. We're in this together, and therefore you can open your kimono. I can get familiar with the fundamental principles of your thinking, and therefore, and and, and I know that's the only way that I can ever have a good sense of whether you've got something or not. And even then. Still, I'm still going to get it wrong a lot of times, right? But literally the only way you can do it is a commitment from permanent capital. Otherwise, you know, maybe you've, you've got good relationships and you trust people and what have you. That requires a different level of faith, which, you know, I think is, is, is meaningful, right? But still, if you're an institution and you have the ability to make a commitment to a team or to an individual that you believe in, that I think is the only way to really have sustain, a sustainable edge. Like what was it, was it Fairfax Financial? Is it Fairfax Financial? The one that's this individual that's that similar, like completely orthogonal thinker. Oh, Chu, Chu. So Francis yeah. Chu works for Fairfax, and he has some Chu funds in Canada. Was that um, anyway? Anyway, like the returns. Maybe I'm not sure. I think it's one of these funds. The returns were phenomenal, but when you when you ask like 
how does a committee make decisions? No, the committee made a decision that whatever he says goes. Mm. Right? It was like, mm. you have all the power. Yeah. Prem, prem Wata. So prem if you have a patron, Wata. if you have a patron who owns um, the, so there are, there are lots of um, endowments for universities that are, uh, that have some pretty significant wealth tied to them. And then they will have some involvement from those folks. And sometimes those folks run pretty significant private equity or hedge fund type environments, and they make pretty substantial donations. And they, they don't take that lightly as in they have a way in which they think about the problem and they, they sort of dictate to the endowment that there will be uh, some unique thought put in place in order to, to they, they, they um, apply their influence, if you will. And so in those cases, you tend to see probably some more unique performances, right? Some unique. And, and uh, you take the, the crazy thing about this in the way our society is structured is that you take an immense amount of personal risk. And I know we talked about this before, but I want to talk about it in the sense of, of like legal risk, right? When I mm -hmm. started in the industry, I, w I started smiling and dialing because I only, you know, I was an immigrant, didn't know anybody. I had these ideas, these quantitative models that I wanted to, to deploy. Um, so I started talking to people. I was in the wealth side of things. And as I got to learn more about the legalities behind what are my risks as the CIO of my wealth book, what it was if something went wrong, right, with my quantitative models and the completely different, you know, long, short, uh, it, it was all alternative base. There was no basic beta. It was wild construction, portfolio construction that nobody was doing at the time. I remember losing sleep at night when somebody told me that the way you're going to be treated in court is they would put other financial professionals in the stand and ask, would a reasonable professional in your shoes have done what you did? And, the, and I knew the answer was going to be categorically no, and I was going to be sued and, and my career was going to be over. Right? It didn't stop me from being a misfit and doing what I wanted to do and the right thing for clients, and it paid off, to kind of thank God. But it was a constant fear. Why I decided to take that risk, I don't know. Why I continue to decide to take that we all as a group and found my people here, we don't know. We're just built differently, right? But you require that level of, of um, irreverence. irreverence to be able to succeed <laughs> in this world. It is, right? And, and, and at the level, and right now, you know, you're not dealing with, like there isn't a public board that's beneath us. When you're at that level, yeah. when you're like, I can imagine Swenson, all the pain that he's had to go through and the personal risk that he went through to do what he did. I just, that's unfathomable. Well, Swenson, Swenson is documented in his books about his success being um, handpicking the investment board in order that they be able to make uh, decisions that are in congruence with his vision. The, the board's out of their mind. Right, the well, board's out of their mind. Yeah, again, I, yeah, I, I, I think I think yeah. originaries. I think that it's you know to some degree we're treading in some waters that we have not lived in for a decade or two. So I do want to I do want to sort of say also that I do feel for all of those uh, who are em employed in managing assets and endowments and, and fiduciaries and things like that. I, I really feel for you, and I and I feel for the the conflict that's there. 
And so, you know, especially in the current paradigm, right, Mike, because we've seen this may be, again, anecdotal, but we some of the evidence would would point to this as well, that uh, a lot of the factor desks in these big endowments have been dismantled. Mm -hmm. You know, investors in general that had relied to uh, varying degrees on these factors for performance have cried uncle. Right. They they they've thrown into tile. It's too much pain. They can't do so. You guys are proposing that they partner up with these asset managers for permanent capital. But the fact of the matter is, in this current paradigm, we are witnessing a, a, a sort of break in the credibility of all these, uh, of several of these strategies. Well, are we or are we just, are we, are we observing a revelation of the fallacy of construction that was there to begin with? You know, like, I think we're all, some of us are waking from a long dream you know that there was this dream that was you could publish a white paper and and gain confidence from purely in sample data and and launch a product and not have to worry about other people discovering it and crowding and overgrazing and inverting the premium right there was a dream that was that's an important distinction yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that. But what is one then to, to do if if most of the actively managed capital out there is still being managed to some degree under this guise? Well, actually, and I think what, it's, what, it's, it's harder than that even because, I mean, the reality is any effort to diversify away from U.S. 60-40 over the last 10 years has been just an excruciating, grinding pit of despair. Right. I mean, we, we just recently ran an analysis prompted, as usual, by by a thoughtful uh, prospect, um, wondering why most of these multi-asset funds have done so poorly relative to 60-40 over the last decade. And so we just ran some random portfolios. So we've got 17 equity futures markets and 10 bond futures markets. And we're going to hold the weight of equities at 60% and bonds at 40%, but we're going to vary the allocation in the equity sleeve um, across all these markets randomly. And we're going to vary the allocations in the bond sleeve across the randomly. And what we observe is that the performance of the uh, ES and TY, so the S&P 500 and the 10-year treasury futures over the last 10 years, were above the 92nd percentile across all of these random potential portfolios, which is to say that you had to be really, really smart. How about the NASDAQ? How about really, if you yeah. The NASDAQ was literally the, the choice of NASDAQ 60-40 with, uh, with treasuries was a one in 10,000 outcome. <laughs> so, you know, you, you had to be just unbelievably like so skilled it's really Godlike. not possible to have been had at your disposal an opportunity to invest across all of these different markets 10 years ago and chosen US 60-40 as your go-to and stuck with it over that full 10-year period. And so so that's a a really general explanation for why um, most multi-asset funds who prioritize diversification first and foremost and have the opportunity to go invest in Europe and Asia and Japan and commodities and other other bond markets and in other currencies have suffered so badly versus U.S. sixty forty and but, further but what we're seeing diversification spectrum the worse it gets. 
What we're seeing, actually, Richard, I think you've seen it with me, is a retrenchment away from the quantitative, like, well-researched uh, active management and saying, well, I don't know anymore, so I'm going to go back to basic. Passive. I'm going to go to, go to passive. That's, that's to exactly right. That's, that's right. And because, because of retrenching retrench to beta, they're like, well, wh how, do we, how should we think about beta? And I'm telling you, risk parity is going to be the thing over the next decade, right? You, you're, that may be where everybody's like, okay, I believe in the equity risk premium. And we're just going to do it in balance and we're going to start there. And then when they realize that bonds are expensive and equity is expensive, it may not be enough. They're going to start to wade back into, this is wild speculation, by the way. This is sounds like a prediction. Um, it does sound like the, a prediction. <laughs> and then you're going to have to, because it's always an ebb and flow, right? So we flow too much towards one end. Forget about all the discretionary managers. We're going to go through this process. Oh, I can replicate that from white paper. I'm going to fire everybody. I'm going to do my active management. Oh, that didn't work. Let's go back, retrench from uh, to beta, possibly a better beta. But they're going to go back into the active space with a whole new mindset. Like they're going to have to because there, there will be exploration into why that didn't work. And there might be some discretionary managers that are really thoughtful thinkers and have this fantastic way of understanding flows in the market and connections in, with trade desks around the world and they can do that and there might be these other quants like us where we're looking at the experimental design completely different so that we don't fall into the same pitfalls that the traditional factor-based um, management does I, th I think you know it's, it's just from un from understanding ebb and flow of this market well here's what we know fundamentally to be true that the stock market will peak when the very last person abandons their efforts at diversification and invest in U.S. equities. Right? That, that is the very moment when the stock market will peak. And we're already seeing lots of, we're getting lots of inquiries and seeing lots of, of comments about, you know, why bother with diversification and, you know, nothing works but U.S. equities or why would you bother? These are people who are capitulating to, it's too painful to be different from the crowd. And I forget who was it that said, you know, there's nothing more painful than watching your neighbor make make money or something like that. I'm butchering that quote, but this is the phenomenon that we're. I think it's not enough to make money, but you have to see your neighbor fail. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's another. another. That's a Mike Philbrick quote. <laughs> Schadenfreude. No, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it's a good, yeah, good point. But well, definitely, you know, it's it's very hard right now for investors to. It's been hard all along. It's it's. It's harder than ever right now at this moment for investors to look beyond U.S. equities. And what that probably means is that it's rarely been more useful to look beyond U.S. equities. And this yeah. is not a market timing call at all. You know, I, I can certainly um, sympathize with Mike Green's arguments and others about the just um, uh, relentless flow of savings into the S&P um, so I can buy that to some certain extent and Corey's paper, et cetera. But I do think you still got to spread your bets, you know, like, yeah, look, I think a good quote to end with is a favorite of mine from supposedly Mark Twain. We'll see, which is whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. That really is some words to live by. All right. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. wisdom. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, with yeah. that, we're at an hour and a half, gentlemen. Any other final thoughts? No, nope. all, all, good. Well, all, all right. of this is counterintuitive. 
what I want to know is when do you make the leap of counterintuitive being intuition? Anyway. Turtles. Turtles. Okay. I like it. I like it. That that is we should cut it right there. All right, Jeff. There you go. You've seeded the conversation for poker now. That's right. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks all. Thanks. This was fun. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.